last week, I took a step back in the Sermon on the Mount to go back to the Beatitudes because we didn't start there. And Jesus admonishing us, speaking to us in our inside voice a little later in the Sermon on the Mount, I wanted to go back to look at one of the Beatitudes to kind of remind us since we weren't there before. And I pointed out the two pillars of biblical or the Hebrew view of the walk of faith. What are the two pillars that it takes in order to be a believer in God? Well, one I told you was the study, the time that we spend in God's word, the Haggadah, okay, the, 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 the concepts of being a disciple. What is it we, we can learn about? We learn about God, we decide whether or not we're going to worship him, we formulate in our hearts and our minds, we study. We're good at that, aren't we? And then there is the walk, the halakha, the walk or the application of that. How do we apply the study? Because again, uh, God said, uh, I want you to love me. I would like you to love me. I'd like you to choose to love me. But you also need to know that if you're going to love me, part and parcel, hand in hand comes, you love your neighbor as what? As yourself. So there's always an application of this love. And the way that I saw it, the way that I looked at it was, was that being able to divide it up, the Beatitudes are divided up in just that way. The first four Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are the mourning, blessed are the hungering and thirsting. They're, those are the concepts. That's what it means. That's what state of heart I come to in, in Jesus. I come to him in a state of need. I'm needing all of those things. I am poor in spirit. I lack spiritual sense. I lack spiritual uh, awareness. I lack a spiritual walk. And I come to him looking for it. I mourn because I need comfort. I mourn because I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I mourn because I live on a planet that isn't what it was supposed to be. And then we are hungering and we're thirsting. Those are all areas of need. And then how do we walk when we get up from there, when we get up from our study? God says, well, this is how, how it'll look. This is how you put the rubber on the road. You'll be merciful. You'll be pure in heart. You'll be peacemakers. You'll be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You'll be salt, city on a hill, light, and you will be glorifiers of God. Let your works shine so before men that you may glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is how it is. So whatever righteousness we need, we have to understand that we are in need of it. The only way that you can approach Jesus as our Messiah, as our Savior, is in an aspect of need. The only people that don't believe truly in Jesus, who are unable to walk in Jesus, are those who feel they don't need him. The walk shows what it means when you put that right, being right with God, having righteousness. The walk is what that looks like when you put that rubber on the road. So last week, our walk had to do with reconciling. The beatitude that I wanted to look at, that we went back to look at, was peacemakers. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, don't seek vengeance, don't even retaliate, don't even be angry, is the way that the halakha would have us walk that one out. Blessed are the peacemakers. This week, the inside voice I don't think gets any easier to listen to. In fact, I think it gets harder because the one I wanted to look at was this one. 
Blessed are the what? Are the pure in heart. Now, before I start, how many here already have a pure heart? Because if you've got one, then I'm gonna dismiss you, let you go home. Uh, actually, don't go home, wait for potluck, okay? Nobody's getting up and leaving. We don't have pure hearts, don't we? Blessed are the pure in heart. Impurity, what would you list? What would you list some of the things that make our heart impure? I like looking at uh, lists, say, from the Victorian era because I just like the way that they're worded. Careless manners, unseemly language, coarse thought. Anybody guilty of those? I'm not 100% sure what all of them mean because I don't speak Victorian, but I'm pretty sure I have all of them. How about lust? Lust's a big one, isn't it, guys? Even gals? Most would have that on their list. I picked on, we've been picked on, the guys have been picked on in the Beatitudes and the walk and the inside voice because uh, we have a problem with this. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even what? Don't even lust. Yet we walk around with it. And for 2,000 years, the church, the church's solution to lust was self-discipline, just Quit thinking those thoughts. Has that worked, guys? How many does that work on? Self-discipline. Philip Yancey said, most, find it, most of us find it a tidal wave that can wipe out the best of intentions. In other words, when we begin to try to not think it, all we can do is what? is thinking. Paul said that that's what the law does to sin. The law multiplies sin. He said, I didn't even know what coveting was until I read the commandment, thou shall not covet, and I figured out I covet all the time, and I couldn't stop. Religious aesthetes, not athletes, but aesthetes, aesthetics, those who were try, trying to attempt to purify their heart by purifying the flesh, they would afflict the flesh for impure thought. They'd wear hair shirts, shirts that would make them itchy. See, if you afflicted the body every time, then you wouldn't have time to have impure thoughts, is what they thought. They sat on poles, poles that they had to stand up or they would fall and they would be up there for hundreds of days at a time. Or they would just flat flagellate themselves every time they had an impure thought, walking down the street, whipping themselves on the back. But the church always comes at it from a standpoint of the sins, to begin with the sin. The sin is an impure heart. So let's begin there. Let's do something about that. And that might be the problem why we cannot move on. Because in the next section, the inside voice, Jesus says, you're doing it backwards. You really think you can purify your heart by purifying your flesh? Everybody in prayer meeting can, can answer that, right? Paul says, you began this walk in the spirit, you think you can end it in the flesh? What in the world is the matter with you? So this is part one on the impure heart. I'm gonna do two parts on it. And part one begins with the doer of the acts of righteousness. It begins with the disciple, those of us who are going to perform acts of righteousness. By the way, it's the only heart we have control over, right? So who's in charge of purifying your heart? 
Well, Jesus is, but who's in charge of giving permission to purify your heart? We are. I can't do it for anybody else. You can't do it for me. So let's begin with the doers of the acts of righteousness. Pure in heart needs to be seen through his lenses. We're gonna listen to his inside voice. The inside voice brings us in and hopefully will take us farther where historically the church has come up short. He starts not with sin, but he starts with the good stuff. He starts with acts of righteousness, not with sins of lust and coarse thoughts and impure thoughts. He begins with the good things. Things that every believer could believe on is something we should all strive to do. So in chapter six, verse one, he says, beware of practicing your what? Practicing your righteousness, your halakha. Practicing, putting your righteousness on the road. We've studied it, we understand it, Jesus told us, blessed are the pure in heart. Now go what? Now go walk in that righteousness. Go perform acts of righteousness. But I've got one rule, he says. One rule I'm gonna tell you right off the bat. Don't do it to be noticed by who? Don't do it to be noticed. Otherwise, you'll have how much reward? No reward with your Father in heaven. You'll have a reward here. Jesus is kind of saying, if you're doing it in order to look good in front of somebody else, congratulations, you have your reward, because there's always going to be people who are going to think that you're righteous based on your appearance. It's one of the problems of living where we live. Now, did he say that there's anything wrong with performing your acts of righteousness in front of somebody else? No. We want to do it in public, don't we? Because, because they have to see it in order for them to glorify our Father who's in heaven, right? He didn't say that it was wrong to do it for other people or in public. He just said that can't be your what? It can't be your motive for doing it. Motive. I want you to remember that word. We all do these things that we're about to talk about. Prayer, fasting, giving. We all do these things. He just says that your motive needs to be pure. If you're doing it to be seen, if your motive is to do it to be seen and not to glorify God, then you're doing it for the wrong motive. And you won't be rewarded by God, he says. The motive of the world always is in order to be seen. That's all the world is concerned with. The world is just fine with people looking good. That's okay. See, because just looking good, I don't have to go any farther past. I don't know how many people that I greeted here today, but I greeted them, asked them how they were doing, and I actually, in my heart of hearts, was thankful that they all said they were doing fine because that allowed me to continue with my day. But chances are probably not everybody is fine. Are they people who I greeted today? And I'm probably not as fine as I told you I was. But I want you to get on with your day too. And that's fine for the world. Jesus says it isn't fine for who? It's not fine for my believers. Because I care about what? I care about how they really feel. I care about being right with them. So that's the motive of the world. 
Ellen White in her book, The Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing says, the words of Christ on the mount were an expression of that which had been unspoken, the unspoken teaching of his life, but which the people had failed to comprehend. They could not understand how having such great power, he neglected to us in it, securing that they regarded as the chief good. Their spirit and motives and methods were the opposite of his. Notice they may have done some of the same works, but their motive was what? It was opposite. While they claimed to be very jealous for the honor of the law, self-glory was the real object which they sought. And Christ would make it manifest to them that the lover of self is a transgressor of the law. Page 79 in that book. Note the tragic line at the end of this verse right here. No reward from your Father in heaven. The tragedy of appearing good while not being good is that there's no permanent reward. There's a temporary reward, as I pointed out before. You're always gonna have people who are gonna praise you for looking good and looking right. I pointed it out last week. All you have to do is say it to the right crowd and you can be very, very popular. But it also allows us to not really be righteous while only appearing to be righteous. So he goes after him. When we give, when you give to the poor, do not what? Do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in what? They have their reward in full. They were doing it to look good in front of somebody, so they have their reward. Charity, acts of mercy. There literally were people who would sound the trumpet before them and people would come just to watch them give because they would give so much. I don't know if you remember, but the, the, the giving pot that, that was there in the court of the temple, it was metal and, and, and it had a metal lip on it. So every time you threw a coin in it, it would make a noise. So I'm not 100% sure, but I know, I know what the self-righteous people did. They took their $10 tithe payment and they turned it into pennies. And they stood there one at a time, clinking it in there. Because they would look what? They would look more charitable. They would look more right. Jesus called them what? He called them hypocrites. The word hypocrite in Greek is the simplest thing. The hypocrite is an actor. One who acts like somebody that they aren't. One who answers. An actor, a hypocrite. One who acts like he is charitable, but that's as far as it goes. He's acting only. By the way, should we worry about this? We just had a very public offering, didn't we? I didn't see anybody put in their tithe or offerings one penny at a time. But we give publicly every Sabbath, don't we? The thing is, is that only me and only you know what our motive was for giving, right? Otherwise, all we saw is that somebody gave, right? But nobody knows my what? Nobody knows my motive. But he says, when you give to the poor, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That is one of my favorite lines. 
It is. It's one of my favorite lines. If it were possible, Jesus says, let your right hand give, but don't tell your left hand. Just let it give. Why? Because the left hand is going to admire it. You're going to admire it. You're going to walk away patting yourself on the back. I don't think it's by accident that he says, because that's what the left hand would do when it knows what the right hand is doing. It'll do this. That doesn't mean you shouldn't feel good. Should we feel good when we give to the poor? Yes. But that shouldn't be our motive, right? It's crazy that we're the only part of God's creation that can sin by doing good. And by the way, the sin while doing good is the most dangerous sin of all. Because if you're doing good, you can't be told that it's what? That it's a sin. And I'm the only one who can know that. So that your giving will be in secret. Your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do your giving where? Do it in secret. See, now you take away that motive, right? Or at least I purify that part of my motive for giving. I do it in secret. God rewards me in secret. When? Where? Well, I come to him every day. I'm in my closet with him. I'm in my inner room. Not in public, but in my inner room. That's where you get your reward. So be as secret as you can. Don't even tell yourself. By the way, there are quite a few people who don't even tell themselves what they're giving because on Sunday morning, Mel's got to call you to find out where you were giving and what, right? Mel, they don't even know what they're doing, which is good. Just keep giving. Just do it for the right what? Do it for the right motive. So the one bookend, or border, if you will, or law, Jesus says, that you cannot go with motive is you cannot do it to be seen by people. Because there will always be people who think nothing about praising you in public because you're doing these things in public. So that's the very first border, is who will see and why are you doing it? I'm gonna skip prayer for just right now. I know that I'm skipping ahead, but I'm gonna go ahead to fasting. Fasting is another practice that some do, not so popular today. In fact, I think the only reason that we can't figure out how is that we never were told how. The Bible doesn't actually tell you how or how often. It just says to fast, okay? So I don't think that it has ever caught on. And it definitely has not caught on because we're not 100% sure of what it's for. That's why I kind of like fasting. But he says, whenever you fast, don't look what? Don't look like you're fasting. Don't look hungry. Like the what? Like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. They get up in the morning, they're completely disheveled. Jesus, uh, I think in Luke, he actually says, you know, they don't anoint themselves with oil. So, so in modern terms, they don't shave, they don't do their hair, they don't put their best clothes on, and they walk out like this. Oh, I'm so weak. This is my third time fasting this week. Truly, I tell you, they've what? They've received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face 
so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by who? But by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Who will see? Fasting and giving are up against that one border. There are a bunch of reasons to give, he says. The one reason you won't give, though, and that you won't fast is what? In order to be seen by others. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing again, page 87. Ellen White says, not, one reason why you don't is not to afflict the body for the sin of the soul, but to aid us in perceiving the grievous character of sin, in humbling the heart before God and receiving his pardoning grace. It's supposed to be a humbling act. It's supposed to be an act of humility. But it seems that the professional fasters have taken humility and they wear it like a badge to be proud of. Look at me, I'm what? I'm fasting. In the Talmud, it was told that a very righteous man would fast once a week. There were guys that were fasting two and three times a week. Again, nothing wrong with that. It's just that they were doing it in order to tell other guys. And to look what? To look righteous. She goes on to say, that will avail nothing. Avail nothing for us to do penance or to flatter ourselves that by our own works we shall merit or purchase an inheritance among the saints. She sounds like Paul, doesn't she? Are you crazy? What's the matter with you? See, if one is trying to appear righteous, fasting becomes a way to work for reward or it becomes a way to afflict the soul. We'll come back to that part. We'll come back to that part next week because she says this. She goes, it's not to afflict the body for sin or of the soul. It's not to do that. We will come back to that next week. But it's so they can appear more righteous by appearing to have done more penance, if you will. But the true reason for fasting was to help us understand our sin. And the sin was pride. The sin that actually allows me to think that just by doing good or by looking good, I actually am good. Fasting was supposed to humble my heart and I'm making it a source of pride. Fasting was supposed to allow me to depend on him. I mean, look at me. I don't think I've ever gone, you know, more than an hour for a meal or a snack, okay? I don't miss many meals. So fasting for 24 hours, that's, that's beyond me. But if I do and I rely on God, God, I'm gonna try this, you're gonna have to keep me awake. You're gonna have to keep me alert. It was supposed to be a way for us to humble our hearts, to receive his grace, to depend on him. When Jesus fasted in the wilderness, one of the reasons was to prove who he truly was depending on. Satan showed up and tried to accuse him of depending on himself. You've got the power. Turn these stones into bread. Jesus' answer was basically, I'm depending on my Father in heaven in this fast. And if he wanted me to eat, it would already be here. Fasting's a way to show in control. 
and fasting, as with other acts of righteousness, are worthless if we're doing it for appearance. Jesus tells us don't. Was he the first? Was Jesus the original voice in telling us not to practice our acts of righteousness in front of someone else? If you think so, you haven't read the prophets. Isaiah 58, verse one says this, shout out loud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion to the house of Jacob, their sins. You're thinking, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? What is going on? Lift up your voice. What sin is going on? What sin are they doing? And it says, day after day, they seek me and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. You'd think, man, what sin are they committing? Guess what they're doing? They're fasting. They're doing the very thing that the Bible tells them to do. They're doing the very thing that God commanded them to do, was to fast. I thought when the prophets started, they were committing some sort of heinous idolatry. But no, what they're doing is they're fasting. But look, look why they're fasting. You fast only to what? Only to quarrel. That's another reason why I'm glad that we, as a body, as a mainstream body, we've kind of let fasting go by the wayside because all the fasting discussion and talk I've ever heard in the church is always a fight about how to do it, how often, and whether or not we should. You fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. So fasting for the right motive has been around for a long, long time. Isaiah is warning Israel. By the way, Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet. So this, doing good things for the wrong motive is one of the reasons Israel gets hauled into captivity because this is just another form of their idolatry. They're worshiping self by trying to appear righteous, by doing exactly what the letter says. But it's missing what? It's missing a pure motive. You're doing it only to look good. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this fast a day acceptable to the Lord? No, he said, this is the fast that I choose. Loose the bonds of injustice. Undo the thongs of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. And to break how many yokes? Every yoke. See, this road of personal holiness so you can look good in front of somebody else, people are being oppressed and you're doing nothing about it. I think the main reason that they got hauled into exile is while they're trying to practice their righteousness and do it by the letter of the law, people are going hungry. And by the way, their keeping of the law is contributing to them being hungry. You ground the face of the widows and the orphans into the dirt while you're bringing your sacrifice up the hill. 
Share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, to cover them and do not, and not to hide yourself from your own kin. These are your brothers and your sisters. You do this, then your light shall break forth like the dawn. Remember what Jesus said? Do these things and it will glorify your Father in heaven if your light shines before men. But this is the light, something that does something for them. So Jesus is saying, fast, but why, but why are you fasting? And what is your fasting doing for somebody else? Your vindicator shall go before you, the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you call on the Lord and I'll answer you, he says. Cry for help and he'll say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom shall be like the what? by like the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, waters that never fail. Who does that sound like right there? It sounds like Jesus speaking to us in the inside voice, doesn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. I say to you, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for them. Isaiah sounds just like him, doesn't he? Yes, I know it is him. I understand that. But this is about 400 years before. Jesus is commanding his disciples what he commanded Isaiah to tell them so many centuries before. Selfish and empty religious duties are worthless. Empty self and others will be served. And your duty will be fulfilled. So, giving, acts of mercy, praying, fasting, those are all religious duties. And every one of them are in danger of appearing religious by doing these religious duties. Every one of them are in danger of being absolutely worthless because of our motive. And this isn't the only place. All throughout the Bible, the prophets warned against this. The prophets, this reading that I just did for Israel, our study, Jesus is warning us as his disciples, using this as an example of what not to do. The Pharisee, I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Why? Because he doesn't fast, he doesn't pray, and he doesn't give like me. Paul warns Timothy. You ever read in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, you must understand this. In the last days, distressing times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You're thinking, man, the world is bad off. Then we forget. Timothy wasn't sent to evangelize the world. He was sent to pastor the church. Paul's not talking about the world. He's talking about Ephesus. Ephesus. 
How do I know that it's a church? Because the church are the only people that worry about this, holding on to a form of godliness while denying its power. The church is the only people concerned with this. The world isn't concerned with this. Looking righteous. That's what the church wants to do. Paul's warning Timothy that it's the church that will be like this. And Timothy could write back saying, but man, they're giving, they're fasting, they're praying. Paul says, ask them why they're doing it. Ask their neighbors why they're doing it. Find out whether or not they're feeding people. Find out whether or not they're clothing people. And then write back to me and tell me that they're doing good things. Jesus himself will say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father in heaven. That day they shall say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them what? I never what? I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Hold on. (laughs) Prophesying, casting out demons, acts of great power, evil? Jesus said, yeah. Why? The acts themselves or their what? Their motive. These are all good things. But Jesus said, you've made them sin because of your motive. And the only thing that we have in common, all of these people have in common, is that they all claim to be believers, just like who? Just like us. How many here claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ? All of us. So he's speaking to how much of us here? How many of us? He's speaking to all of us. Israel, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, chief priests, disciples, the Ephesus church, anybody who says, Lord, Lord, in the kingdom, all those who claim to be God's people. And they all appear that they can do it only to appear good. And when they are, they're no better than the world. None of us are. See, because if we can appear good just by doing religious duty, well, that means anyone can do it, which is why it's so dangerous. It can be done by anyone. And if it can be done by anyone, how can anybody tell the difference? Once again, That word, motive. Why does the world want to at least appear good? Why does the religionist or the self-righteous want to appear good? In their mind, it gets them what they want. In their mind, it may get them even to heaven. I saw the idea collide. I've never forgotten it. It was one of the very first Sabbath school classes I've ever went to. I don't think I was a member yet. I think I was just starting to attend. And we were sitting in Sabbath school and a a woman raised her hand and she's almost angry. She actually is almost angry. And she says this, she says, my apartment manager is one of the kindless, godly people I've ever met. He paid rent for those who couldn't. We would always, he could always be counted on. We would call on him, he's always helpful. And she said, he doesn't claim any church affiliation. And every Bible study that we've offered to give him, he's just politely refused. And then she says this, I would like to think that he would be in heaven. I look back on it now, 
And I think it's sad, extremely sad, for a believer to say this in a Sabbath school class. I'll give you three reasons. One is, is that this class somehow, or that church somehow, had gotten across to her that if her landlord wasn't in our church, then he wasn't or couldn't be saved. She was making a case for him to be where? To be in the kingdom. She felt she had to make a case for him in front of her fellow church members, which means she doesn't think that he can be either. Without what? Without the church, without Bible study. The second reason is that a Seventh-day Adventist Christian disciple believes that heaven can be bought with a few good deeds. See, the world believes that. The world believes that as long as you're kind and if you're kind as possibly as you possibly can and as long as your kindness outweighs your unkindness, then that's what buys you the kingdom. Note, buys you the kingdom. The only reason for doing religious uh, duties, if you will, for appearance is actually we're looking to save ourselves. And we're actually telling the world that the kingdom can be bought. That's the problem with them. The other problem with them is that they'll they'll mask the true need for grace. See, if I'm successful in buying the kingdom off because I'm getting kinder and kinder every day and I'm doing my religious duties and I'm getting better at it, if if I'm doing that, then you can't tell me that I'm sinning. You can't tell me that I need grace. As a matter of fact, I'm telling God that every day. I thank you, oh Lord. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not a thief. I'm not a rogue. I'm not an adulterer. We are rich, O Lord, and we need nothing. Laodicea sits behind a locked door with their acts of righteousness and their Bible study and their present truth, and they lock Jesus out. He is knocking to get in. The Romans 1 through 3 make it perfectly clear, the irreligious, the ones who practice evil, those evil deeds, but the religious, the ones doing good deeds. He says the religious are actually practicing evil, and they say, wait, no, those are good deeds. He says, no, there's not one righteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand in need of grace. And self-righteousness covers that up. Jesus quoted this to self-righteous people who thought that they were sinning on the Sabbath by getting wheat from a field. And he says, here's, if you knew this, he said, if you knew what Hosea meant when you said this, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than what? Rather than burnt offering. Hold on a second. So all the, all the instruction Uh, Three uh, books on it, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, all the ones that command people to bring their burnt offerings. You're saying, Hosea, that that's worthless? And and, and Hosea's saying, yeah, if you don't know God. I'd rather you know me, God said, than do what I said. 
Abraham Heschel, commenting on this passage in his book, The Prophets, says, he can be considered in harmony with many other pre-exilic prophets who along with Hosea in this passage uttered violent attacks on sacrifices. And he names them Amos 5 and Isaiah 1 and Micah 6 and Jeremiah 6 and 7 and 8, Isaiah 61, Psalm 40 and 50, all utter these attacks. These prophets not only stress the primacy of morality over sacrifice, but even proclaim that the worth of worship, far from being absolute, is contingent upon moral living. And when immorality prevails, worship is detestable. Questioning man's right to worship through offerings and songs, they maintain that the primary way of serving God is through love, justice, and righteousness. Hosea was not condemning the practice of sacrifice itself, nor were any of these prophets. If that were true, he says, if you were to believe that, then you'd have to conclude that Isaiah intended to discourage the practice of prayer. They did, however, claim that deeds of injustice vitiate both sacrifice and prayer. Men may not drown out the cries of the oppressed with the noise of hymns, nor buy off the Lord with increased offerings. The prophets disparaged the cult, the sacrifice, when it became a substitute for righteousness. So notice that he mentioned prayer. I told you we'd get back to prayer as one of our acts of righteousness. And I wanna cap off this discussion about motive being what Jesus is speaking of when he says that we are blessed if we are pure in heart. That motive is what he's talking about because it reminds us of something. He says this, whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will what? Will reward you. That's what we're seeking, right? We're seeking a reward, but not a temporary reward from people. We're seeking a permanent reward from who? From God, this is where we get it. We get it when we pray. When you're praying, don't heap up empty phases as the Gentiles do. For they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. I left prayer here because it gives us the other boundary to motive. The first boundary is don't do it to be seen by who? Don't do it to be seen by people. If you're doing it to do that, congratulations, you have your reward. The other boundary is don't do it to find favor with God. Don't think that your prayers and your giving and your fasting is gonna allow you to find favor with God. Because he says this, for they think that they'll be what? That they'll be heard. But they'll be heard because they can heap up what? Empty phrases, eloquent words. And the more that they do, they believe that the more God will what? Will hear them. But he says, you know what? Your father already knew what you were going to say before you said it. So you think, you think that heaping up empty phrases is going to impress him? Jesus is saying you don't pray to find favor with people. You also don't pray to find favor with God. Why? Because Jesus is living, walking proof. You've already found favor with God. When you enter that prayer closet, you're not going in there to try to please him. You're going in there because he's already pleased with you. 
For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. What more do you want him to do to prove to you that he's already pleased with you? And a few acts of righteousness is not going to make him like you any better. We have to apologize to all of us self-righteous people. I'm sorry, Greg, Jesus says, but my father just loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. He knows everything you're gonna say, yet he still wants to spend time with you. He just likes the sound of your voice. Not a bad reason to get up and pray every morning just because my father likes to hear you talk. That's what our scripture reading was about. He knows, right? He already knows. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a man plucked from the fire? Satan thought he had something. Look at him. He's supposed to be high priest. He's supposed to be the holiest man on the planet representing you. And look at him. Look how filthy he is. Look how sinful he is. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. You think you know him? I know all of him. I know every inch of him. I know his heart. I know his motive. And I'm the one who chose him to be high priest. In fact, right now, I'm going to choose to clothe him in perfect righteousness, which our high priest has done for us. You think you know him? I know him. He knows. He knows our motive. He knows that our motive is as impure as filthy rags, and yet he still calls us. That's my favorite part of the motive part. Don't do it to find favor with men, but especially don't do it to find favor with God because you've already found favor with God. Righteousness will walk as well as talk. Righteousness will touch as well as speak, but righteousness will also be safe from our impure motives. I really believe this is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the pure in heart. We do good things, but we do them for the right motive. We do bad things and we confess them and are cleansed and atoned. We come to him because we need him and we do it because our hearts are pure, because his heart is pure, and he already gave us that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they are children of God. Thank you for hanging in there with me.